John chapter 8, where we left off in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. John chapter 8 is a very long chapter. And remember, it is a series of contrasts, of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so John in his gospel is presenting a series of those encounters and contrasts. He talks about light versus darkness in verses 1 through 20. Heaven and earth in verses 21 through 30. Freedom and slavery in verses 31 through 40. And then later he's going to dramatically unfold this amazing revelation, the revelation of the children of God and the children of Satan. That's in verses 41 through 47. In John's gospel, we've been introduced to new birth, to two births. The birth from on high or above and the birth in this world. There are two ways to die. There's a way the sinner dies in their sin, and the believer dies in the Lord. And now the religious leaders are admonished to prove their faith by proving their faithfulness. The opponents of Jesus point to their human and religious advantages, that they are direct descendants of Abraham. Jesus points out that bondage and liberty aren't simply defined in political terms, in social terms, in economic terms, but there is this intensely spiritual component. The Bible teaches that the sinner is enslaved to sin, in bondage to his or her lust and passion, to Satan and to the world. But when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, when we receive the truth about Jesus, slaves are set free. Several decades ago, Dr. Carl Menninger, a psychiatrist, wrote a controversial book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. He was distressed that modern society was attempting to discuss, define, and then determine human behavioral problems and solutions that were moral in content without ever mentioning the word sin. 
he was convinced the only way to raise the moral tone and deal with the ongoing problem of self-worship, bitterness, resentment, depression, and other issues was to once again revive an understanding of that word sin. There was a survey by Ellison Research in Phoenix, and it found that 87% of U.S. adults believed in the existence of sin, which was defined as, quote, something that is almost always considered wrong, particularly from a religious or a moral perspective, unquote. Topping the list was adultery at 81%, racism at 74%, premarital sex, well, that only got 45%. Gambling, even lower, 30% say that that's sinful. A lot of this is relative. We tend to view sin not as sin as God views it, but as we view it, says Ellison, President, of, uh, or says Ellison, President Ron Sellers. David Kinneman, President of Barna Research, a company in Ventura, California, that tracks Christian trends, draws a similar conclusion, quote, people are quick to toe the line on traditional thinking that there is sin, but interpret that reality in a very personal and a self-congratulatory manner, unquote. I have to do what's best for me. I have to do what's best for my family. And I'm not as sinful as most people, unquote. Indeed, 65% of U.S. adults say, they will go to heaven. Only 0.05% believe that they would go to hell. Now think about that. Only one half of 1% surveyed believe that there was even the possibility that they could go to hell. Isn't that interesting? How does God view sin? Well, rebellion against him. How does God define sin? It's really very simple. Disobedience to Him. According to my sources, Mark Twain is the person who was first credited with the quote, Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. The saying's been around for a very long time. Human beings find it hard to deny the reality of sin. They find it hard to deny the existence of sin. They find it hard to deny the consequences of sin. Where it typically comes in is in relationship to their own heart and their own behavior. Any person willing to follow the evidence has to conclude that sin is real and that sin is a very real problem. But guess what? When Jesus is confronting the religious leaders concerning his own claims and his own circumstances and what it means to have a right relationship with God and to deal with this issue, they come out of the gates denying that they even have a problem. Look at verse 33. Now, in order to understand it, we have to go back just a little bit to verse 30. Remember what it says? As he spoke these words, many believed in him. But remember what I told you, that this isn't belief that necessarily results in salvation. It was a willingness to accept some of the words that he was saying, but that they weren't quite there. And then in verse 33, they answered him, 
We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, on on the surface, when you read that, you have to think, what rope are these people smoking? We have never been in bondage. Who haven't you been in bondage to? They were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were in bondage to the Assyrians. They were in bondage to the Babylonians. They were in bondage to the Medes and the Persians. They were in bondage to the Greeks. They were in bondage to the Romans. Who haven't they been in bondage to? What you have to understand is one of at least three things is happening. Either the religious leaders do not understand what Jesus is saying, or they, in fact, understand what Jesus is saying, and they are annoyed with him. They are annoyed with Jesus and his messianic claims. They're annoyed with his view of sin. They're annoyed with his view of salvation. The whole chapter reminds us of the religious leaders' lack of knowledge, lack of perception, lack of appropriation, lack of desire. Remember what Jesus said in verse 31 and 32. If you abide, that is live, dwell in my word, that is my teachings, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, one of two things is true. They didn't understand. Number two, they do understand and they reject it. That means they don't believe God's word. Or number three, they're deluded. They're literally living in some sort of delusionary world. You see, for the religious leaders, when they hear the word free, they think free from the jurisdiction of conquering nations. The fact that the that remained that Jewish people had a long history of captivity, slavery, and bondage. At the very moment that Jesus is speaking these words, they're under the jurisdiction of Rome. The Jewish leaders believed, listen carefully, with every fiber in their being, that even under the most difficult political circumstances, that they had never really surrendered their heart their will, their allegiance to foreign invaders. You have to understand something. In their mind, they are free. Because in their mind, the law of Moses made it clear that no Jew, no matter how poor, no matter how disadvantaged, had to sink to the level of slavery. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 through 42, the law said, And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave, for they are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Josephus speaks of one Judas of Galilee who after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus mounted a very famous revolt against the Romans. He wrote, and I quote, They have an inviolable attachment to liberty, and they say that God is to be their only ruler and their only Lord, unquote. For the Jew, bondage in body didn't mean bondage in soul. The fundamental flaw, the inherent weakness with every human government is that all human governments are run by human beings. 
And since all human governments are run by human beings, and since human beings are utterly, completely, totally, unequivocally, hopelessly corrupt, you have some real issues that you have to deal with. At the core of human nature is rebellion against God. So, how free were they? In the religious leader's mind, they believed that they were free indeed. But here's what you have to understand. They believed that they were free apart from the revelation of God. They were free apart from the promises of God. They were free apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? That isn't freedom at all. It's only the pretense of freedom. The truth? They were in deep debt to the worst form of slavery. The slavery of sin. Some people, in order to make sin go away, they will simply deny the existence of sin. That's the worldview of the Hindu people and the Buddhist people and Christian science and mind science. For the Hindu, by simply denying the reality of sin, they can make it go away. Or the Christian scientists. And that is, that's always, those words have always sort of interested me because when I was doing research on Christian science, I discovered something that they're like grape nuts. It's not Christian and it's not science. Grape nuts, the cereal. These aren't grapes and these aren't nuts. Why would you call something that which it fundamentally isn't? And so, in order to make sin go away, they just simply say, sin is something that human beings invented in order to control thinking and in order to control behavior. Others point to their godly heritage as the basis of being accepted by God. And so when the religious leaders affirm in that sentence, we are Abraham's seed in the original language, it says seed is translated by some descendants. They're claiming special privileges by virtue of their pedigree. And certainly Abraham was a faith-filled figure. He is the father of faith. He is one of the most impressive and most important spiritual figures in all of human history and definitely Jewish history. And so... We can ask and answer the question, well, doesn't godly heritage count for something? Doesn't the fact that your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather have a godly heritage? Certainly there is value. There is great value. Do virtues cancel out vices? Do good deeds cancel out bad deeds? Well, that's what a lot of people believe. Many years ago in my legal research and writing class, my Law professor said, in law school, we were taught, if the law is in your favor, argue the law. If the facts are in your favor, argue the facts. If neither the law nor the facts are in your favor, pound the desk and argue. For the religious leaders, the law isn't in their favor and the facts aren't in their favor. There is a problem. There is a God. There is sin. They need a Savior. Jesus has made the claim that the religious leaders have a sin problem. And their response to the problem of sin is deny it, deny it, deny it, and maybe it will go away. By the way, 
Who do you think is the group most likely to deny the existence of sin? I'm going to suggest to you it's not sinners. Most sinners know that they're sinning. It's religious people. It's religious folks. Religious folks are typically deluded by sin because sin is self-deceiving. The sinner gripped by sin, deluded by sin, fails to understand his or her identity. And with the delusion of wellness comes the response, I'm fine. You ever had a conversation with a person? Well, aren't you a little bit concerned about your heart and about your sin and about your circumstances? I'm fine. I'm fine just the way that I am. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with my religion. And that's exactly what the religious leaders are saying. And look what Jesus says. Well, you know, there seems to be some evidence that you're not fine. Look at the first line of evidence. We commit sin. In verse 34, Jesus answered them. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a, is a slave of sin. Now, in the response of Jesus, remember what we've seen over and over again. We have seen the expression, verily, verily, or most assuredly, over and over again in John's Gospel. And remember what I've told you. That that word is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew meaning, what I'm about to say is absolutely true, so you should listen carefully. Or as Charles Stanley is fond of saying in Atlanta, Georgia, listen up, because what I'm about to say is important. That's exactly this kind of emphasis. He's saying, I need you to listen carefully, because what I'm about to say is absolutely true. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The sinner may affirm he or she is free to do what they want, but they are in fact bound to their habits, bound to the indulgences, bound to the self-absorbed pleasures that pervade true activity. Roy Lauren, a companion of Billy Graham, wrote, Sin is that element in human nature which makes it easier to break a commandment than to break a habit, unquote. That's very good. You see, sin is a kind of Gordian knot. Are you familiar with the story of the Gordian knot? When the Phrygians needed a king, they were instructed by the oracle of Delphi to choose the first person they met riding on an ox cart toward the temple of Zeus. And they did it. It was a man named Gordons. He was a poor peasant who afterward dedicated his cart and his yoke to Zeus. And he tied the knot so skillfully that the oracle declared that whoever should unloose it would become the ruler over all of Asia. And many tried to do it. And each and every person who tried to untie the knot failed to do it. And then came Alexander the Great with his Macedonian legions. And he basically marched to the place. And he took out his sword. And then he cut the knot in half. Well, sin is like that Gordian knot. Sin is so tightly wrapped and so tightly intricately tied that no one can solve the problem except for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't cut the knot of sin with a sword. He cuts it in half with a cross. He comes and He dies on a cross for your sin. He rises from the dead for your redemption and reconciliation so that the power of sin and the penalty of sin gets released from your life. 
And so the person who sins, Jesus says, is never truly free. They're living a lie. Most of us are familiar with the scripture where it says in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we also know that the wages wouldn't be all that attractive if we collected our wages all at once. It would be like in the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira are caught in their sin and then they just simply drop dead. Can you imagine if what happened to me and what happened to you is the moment I sinned, I would just drop dead. And the moment you sinned, you would drop dead. Well, then we would be having a service because I would be dead and you would be dead. But death will catch up with us. In the end, Jesus is making a veiled threat. Look what Jesus says. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You know what the word slave means. It's a person who doesn't have freedom. But you don't understand how emotionally charged that word would have been to every single Jewish person listening. Imagine you march down to the Pepsi Center and you go to the front of the platform and you announce to the assembly there, I'm a conservative Republican. Is that a meaningful word to all of the people who are listening? It's a charged word. Imagine a liberal Democrat goes to the Republican convention and says, I am a liberal Democrat. Is that a charged word? Is that an emotionally charged word? When you say liberal, when you say conservative, when you say Republican, when you say Democrat, these are words that are, are filled with all kinds of implications about life, about philosophy, about this, about that. And so when the Jew hears the word slave, it reminded every Jew, every Jew listening to Jesus' words, would have been reminded that in any given household you had sons and you had slaves. The son is a permanent dweller in the household because a son has all of the rights and the privileges of his father and his father before him, but the slave can be kicked out at any time. If you're a slave, you could be dismissed for any reason or no reason at all. And look what Jesus says in verse 35. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is listening and addressing their criticism, their refusal to listen and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord. They basically said to Jesus, Jesus, we don't have to listen to you. We're fine. We're Abraham's seed. We have a deal. We have a covenant with God. We're a religious people. Think carefully, Jesus. We are religious. We're happy in our religion. Thank you very much. Have you ever met someone like that? Look, I'm happy to be what I am. Just leave me alone. I want to have the kind of religion where... I don't have to worry about Jesus, and I don't have to worry about all of the things that you Christians worry about. You take this thing so seriously. When you receive Christ, you tell other people. You start reading your Bible. You start doing strange things. 
The response of Jesus is interesting. But make no mistake about it, it's also alarming. Jesus is in effect saying, you think that your son's in God's house. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking that you are sons in God's house and nothing, no nothing can take that away. There's nothing that can keep you from God. And I need you to do something. I need you to rethink what you're thinking. Because your conduct says something else. You say you're sons, but you act like slaves. You think like slaves. You talk like slaves. And the slave has no paternal tie to the householder or the master. The slave can be rejected. Make no mistake about it. This is a threat. But God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind. God is loving. God is generous. The slave can be released. The slave can be redeemed. The slave can be bought back. The slave can be given a brand new status. Look at verse 36. Therefore, if the Son, let's read it. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That is a hallelujah. When he says, therefore, it's in light of everything that has been said up till now. In light of all of the problems and the pain that are associated with slavery. If the Son makes you free from, from the pernicious presence of sin, from the power of sin, and from the penalty of sin. If the Son makes you free, liberated, you shall be free indeed. It's not a hoax. It's not some religious chant. It is a powerful liberation that takes place. Remember verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And now in verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Jesus is speaking of spiritual liberation. He's speaking of emancipation from sin. The Jews, remember, remember, they're claiming to belong to the household of God by virtue of birth. How do we belong to the household of God? By virtue of birth. We're born again. Remember what it said in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came into his own and his own didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right, the privilege, the power to be called the children of God. Look what it says. To those who believe on his name. You're born a slave but you're born again a son or a daughter. You're born into the serious consequences of sin, which results in death and separation from God, but you are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. The Son sets us free from the yoke of sin and the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And listen carefully, even from the future presence of sin. You know why? Because one day he's going to remove you from the sinful world and he's going to place you in a sinless environment and heaven's version of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, is going to quarantine sin forever. And over that quarantine, you'll see emblazoned the word hell. That's what hell is. It's the place where sin is quarantined and forever, forever, forever dealt with. 
Salvation, if it means anything, it has to mean to successfully deliver someone or something from impending danger. And the definition requires the understanding that you really are in danger and that you are willing to be saved. And he's talking about this powerful, redemptive ability. And look what it says. The second line of evidence. That they refuse Jesus. Not only do they fail to take into consideration that sinners sin, but look what else sinners do. They refuse Jesus. In verse 37, it says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. And listen to what he says. Because my word has no place in you. Jesus doesn't deny their godly heritage. He points out that their godly heritage should have caused them to exercise a proper response to Jesus. And that's what your godly heritage should have done. Did your mother and your father love the Lord? Did your grandfather and great-grandfather love the Lord? Did their father and mother honor the Bible and honor the Word of God and honor the person of Jesus Christ? Your godly heritage should make you the one person who is unwilling to dishonor God under any circumstance. When faced with Jesus and with faced with the claims of Jesus, when faced with the miracles of Jesus, the religious leaders view Jesus not as a savior, but as a threat. And the threat level in the Jewish homeland security office has gone from green to yellow to orange, and now it's burning bright red. And so when a person says, I don't have a sin problem, you can rest assured that that person will go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that Jesus isn't around. Or it's the Jesus of their own imagination. A Jesus who they have concocted in their own mind. A Jesus who doesn't really represent what the New Testament has to say. Several years ago on the CNN program, Larry King Live, Joel Osteen was being interviewed. And he was asked the question which every religious leader gets asked. Billy Graham got asked this question. Um, John MacArthur got asked this question. Um, Rick Warren got asked this question. He was asked the question, what happens to people who reject Jesus Christ? What happens to the people who reject Jesus Christ? His answer was interesting. Well, Larry... Larry, I think, well, Larry, Larry, I think, I think, Larry, well, Larry, Larry, I just don't know. I just don't know. Larry King had a follow-up question. They're wrong, aren't they? You know, that Larry, they're wrong, right? They're wrong, aren't they? Osteen's response, quote, Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe... I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion. But I know that they love God. And I don't don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches 
I want to have a right relationship with Jesus. Now, you've got to understand something. Osteen was given repeated chances, both by Larry King and caller after caller after caller, plainly gave him an opportunity to say that God has revealed himself. That the real problem that human beings face is sin. And that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Larry King asked Osteen if he uses the word sinners. Osteen replied, I don't use it. I I, I never thought about it. But I probably don't. But most people already know what, when they're doing wrong, when I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. Unquote. Thousands of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have come in to this church through those doors, down that hallway, through those doors, sitting in the same seats you're sitting in. Do you realize that not a single person, not one single person has ever changed ever by coming to this church? The only way that you could possibly change, the only way that you could possibly change your heart, the only way that you could possibly change your mind and your thinking is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must repent of your sin and you must turn to Christ. And coming through those doors and sitting in that chair will never, no, never, no, never change you. How can you preach the gospel and not think about sin? One of the most remarkable things about that remark, I I never thought about it. Joel, how could you not think about it? How many times is the word sin mentioned in the Bible? One? Ten? A hundred? You can, you can t- it's a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred. How can you seriously, legitimately open your Bible and escape the reality that sin is a huge problem? How can you preach the gospel and not think about it? Michael Horton calls Joel Osteen's message a form of moral therapy, changing your lifestyle to receive God's favor. I want you to have your best life possible. Well, who doesn't? Does anyone seriously want to see their children sick? Does anyone seriously want to see their marriage fail? Does anyone seriously want to see their life wind up Horrible and terrible. But it isn't your best life ever that will save you from your sin or redeem you from your circumstances. Horton goes on to describe how a message goes from moral therapy to the trivialization of sin, reducing it to a series of mistakes, and that those mistakes can be made up You can make up your mistakes. You can go to church a little bit more. You can send your children to the Sunday school. You can get involved in church. And trust me, I want you to go to church. And I want you to participate in the Sunday school. But the truth, the truth, the truth, if you've never made a break from your sin, and if you've never received Jesus Christ from your Savior, as your Savior, you might improve your personal circumstances, but you will wind up in hell. Don't have a sin problem? Just pretend like you don't have a sin problem. Don't have a sin problem? Make sure Jesus isn't a part of your life. The third line of evidence, we follow our Father. Now look what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 38. I speak what I have seen with my Father, 
And you do what you have seen with your father. Who is Jesus' father? God. God the Father. And you do what you have seen with your father. Who is their father? Yeah, if you read ahead in verse 44, he lets the cat out of the bag. Look at this in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Now listen carefully. They've been saying, our dad is Abraham. Abraham is our dad. Here's what Jesus says. Are you willing to take a test for paternity? Let's just do a paternity test. Jesus speaks what his father says. They do what their father has always done. We're not given, again, the full impact until verse 44. Their religious roots are being pulled up. Their glorious claims of religious pedigree are being challenged by what they actually do. Their words, their deeds leave little doubt concerning their paternity. A human being can only prove kinship to God by what they really do. According to Jesus, a person's identity is proved not only by character, but also by conduct. When I was growing up, there was a commercial that was very popular. It was called Like Father, Like Son. Think about it. And in this commercial, there was a guy with his son, and they're around the car, and they're washing the car, and the kid is washing the car, and the dad begins to sponge the car, and the son begins to sponge the car, and the dad lights up a Marlboro cigarette, and the son goes and pretends like he's putting the cigarette in his mouth. Is it okay to smoke? If you're on fire, it's okay. Like father, like son. Jesus points out that sinners not only are deluded about their sin, not only do they deny their sin, not only do they trivialize their sin, but they follow their father. And so that's the fourth line of evidence. We fail to follow in faith and obedience. Read it for yourself in verse 39. It says, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You understand what's happening? Jesus is saying that God is his father. Jesus is saying that Satan is their father. Make no mistake about it. The religious leaders have come to yet another conclusion that Jesus is wrong. You're wrong, Jesus. Abraham's our father. Jesus' response, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Jesus is, in effect, inviting them to take the ultimate spiritual paternity test. Do you realize in our culture and society, in law, there's a concept called paternity fraud. 
Some of you are familiar with paternity fraud. Paternity fraud is the act of falsely naming a man to be the biological father of a child, particularly for the purpose of collecting child financial support, also called maintenance, also called welfare by a mother when she knows or suspects that he's not the biological father. When a woman applies for welfare and names a name on a birth certificate that is in fact not the father's name, and then tries to hold him accountable for support of a child that isn't really his. They're, they're committing a crime. And so Jesus is asking them to take the ultimate paternity test. What are the works of Abraham? The Bible says in Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The consistent testimony in the New Testament emphasized Abraham's faith. There's a reason why he's called the father of faith. Paul devotes the entire fourth chapter of Romans to demonstrate that Abraham is saved by grace through faith and that not of works, according to Romans chapter four, verse two, or because he was circumcised, according to verses 10 through 12, or because of the law, according to verses 13 through 16. Paul spends a great deal of time talking about Abraham in Galatians chapter three, verses six through 14. So how does that compare with the religious leaders? They're trying to earn God's favor through self-righteousness. They're trying to earn God's favor through good works. They're trying to earn God's favor through good deeds. John MacArthur writes, quote, Salvation is not based on legalistic effort, religious affiliation, or ethnic background. Rather, it comes solely through faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. God's testimony concerning him was this. He's quoting from Genesis 26.5. Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. That's what it says in Genesis 26.5. In verse 40 of chapter 8. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Listen. Okay, I know Abraham. I was with Abraham. I'm trying to remember when Abraham tried to kill me. Trying? No. Not remembering? Not? No. Pretty much no. Abraham never tried to kill me. But you are trying to kill me. Because I'm telling you the truth. You have to understand something. For the Jew, Abraham, like I said, is the most important person in all of religious history. They had a kind of a belief in Abrahamic paternity. It was the ancient Jewish version of eternal security. Many Jews believed that by simply being a child, by simply being a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, by simply carrying the genetic marker would secure for them a place in heaven. We're the chosen people. You are chosen for the promises of God, the oracles of God. You are chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And once the Messiah comes, this is your responsibility to receive him, to know him, to love him. Over and over again, Isaiah 41.8. 
oh offspring. But you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Psalm 105, 6. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. The religious leaders would have pointed to those scriptures and other scriptures as proof positive that they're fine. That they're fine. That they're just fine. Think about what happens when you deny your sin and then deny your Lord. Jesus points out that the true descendant had to be willing to act the way that Abraham acted. So he's asking the religious leaders, okay, let's just do the math here for a second. Abraham wasn't a murderer. You are. Abraham loved and obeyed the truth. You don't. Abraham welcomed me. You don't. No wonder it says in Matthew 3, 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Isn't that odd? God could take a piece of dirt, albeit a very big piece of dirt, and turn it into a child of Abraham. Paul will repeat the argument. Jesus doesn't bring his opinions. He brings the message of God. He's not simply a man telling other men what to do. But he's the Son of God telling human beings that he's the truth. And how God sees the truth. In the 4th century AD, Augustine of Hippo wrote, Sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, self-sustained. If you've come to the conclusion that you're a self-made man or woman, and that you don't need anyone or anything, and that you have everything just the way you are. Then you'll reject Christ. John Dickey wrote, We have sinned, fearfully sinned, and that we may be delivered from it and its consequences, two things are needed. Two, not one. The two things are repentance faith. And by the way, repentance means to fully, finally, completely turn from your sin. It means to turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive Him as Lord and the Savior. We will never cease to be plagued with sin. But do you know what this passage of Scripture tells us? We need never, ever be brought under its dominion ever again. Because you've been made free in Jesus from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. In the next section, Jesus is going to ask and answer 
this important theological question. Who's your daddy? Because the question doesn't quite go away just yet. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you that we have a Savior who releases us from sin. Lord, we pray that we would not be deluded into thinking that we're fine when in fact we're not fine. Deluded into living our lives that quite apart from the Creator, quite independent from God, committed to leaving Him out. Lord, I pray that we would come to that place where we would believe Jesus. Not just with our minds and not simply with our hearts, but with our words and with our deeds. That the change that Jesus has wrought in our life and in our thinking will result in a transformation of living that becomes evident to everyone watching us exactly who our Father is. And so again, Lord, we commit that to you, Lord. I pray for each and every person listening that that they would open up their heart to you, repent of their sin, turn to Jesus fully and finally, forever and ever. Amen.